Hey hikers, welcome to the Thruer Podcast, where we talk to new and experienced long distance or through hikers about their adventures on and off trail. I'm your host, Cheer. In this episode, we are featuring PCT, JMT, and CDT hiker and wilderness skills instructor, Ned Tibbetts. And the audio was actually recorded during our Oversnow Navigation Zoom meetup with Ned. Ned will be the first one to tell you that his word is not gospel. However, he's had immense experience hiking, teaching, and conducting rescue efforts in the Sierra. What Ned is teaching here is very valuable, and this is yet another resource for you to prepare as a hiker. At the end of the day, research current conditions, learn all you can from different sources, and make the decision that's right for you when the time comes. One of Ned's endeavors is called Mountain Education, which is a nonprofit that promotes wilderness safety. If you've gained value out of this session, consider donating to Think Ned for his time. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to do that. At times during the Zoom meetup, Ned talks about something he's showing on screen, and there's also a 20-minute video he shows later on. This still has value if you're listening because he's pretty descriptive, but be on the lookout for the YouTube video on our all new YouTube channel. The link will be in the show notes and you can also get updates if you sign up for our mailing list, which you can do at our website. It's www.thruer.com. That's www.thru-r.com. And just on that note of the YouTube videos coming out, um, I'm having a little bit of trouble with the river crossing and the steep snow travel. Unfortunately, the files are really big, so I'm working on editing those for you guys. And um, if you sign up for the mailing list um, and subscribe to the YouTube channel, you will get the latest on that. All right, now let's get to it. Enjoy this informative session with Ned Tibbetts. ready? Let's get started. Okay, guys. Let me just introduce myself and then I'll introduce Ned. So my name is Carol Coyne. My trail name is Cheer. Hey, everybody. Um, I'm the founder of Thruer and we are a long distance hiking community that provides community um, education and resources for new and experienced hikers. Let me introduce Ned. So um, Ned has so many credentials um, and experience in specifically the Sierra range. He is a wilderness skills instructor. Um, He is a United States Forest Service Wilderness Ranger. He's a Knowles Wilderness EMT, search and rescue instructor. He thru-hiked the PCT um, and the JMT many times, and he also has hiked um, a big portion of the Continental Divide Trail. So without further ado, Ned, take it away. Uh, am I live? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody can hear me? The question always comes up among my students who want to take um, our basic uh, snow class. You know, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to get lost. I'm afraid I'm going to fall down. I'm afraid I'm going to die because I'm going to freeze to death. You know, some of that stuff is your, your very basics. And it's, I'm thrilled that you guys t- are taking the time to make this a priority because that's all going to be very real right now. It may be a little cryptic to you, maybe a little out in the distance and, and you don't really understand, but maybe I should, you know, like <clears throat> get an ice axe, you know, what the hell is it, you know? Uh, but I know I should have one. I don't know what to do with it, that kind of thing. But at least you're here. At least you're preparing and arming and equipping yourself with the knowledge and 
and, and a little bit of the understanding of what you're walking into. I like to equate um, uh, preparing for what you're going to do. Uh, I like coming, uh, going into a boxing ring or going into any kind of challenging situation where, you know, if you want to come out on top, you better know the tactics of your opponent. And in this case, it's just the wilderness. It's just it doing what it does. And yes, it is a relationship. And yes, you will become very intimately equated. Uh, equated. Uh, what is the word? Uh, intimately. Um, acquainted. Acquainted. Good God, I had it wrong. Um, acquainted with her ways, the ways of the wild, the ways of the wilderness. Um, that is what is going to, to totally transform your lives. And if that's why you're doing this trail, you're in for a great ride and it will happen from the inside out. So some of the stuff that we're gonna talk about um, primarily is dealing with the outside, but what I'm gonna to refer to as the whys and hows of doing some of it comes from deep inside. So um, without saying any further along those lines, let's start talking about how I'm gonna break this down. So obviously you're gonna to get to uh, something called snow line. Now snow line, and some of this is gonna to have to do with definitions and junk like that, but the snow line is where you will first encounter snow and patches. Um, depending upon what aspect of the hillside you're on, you, you may have a solid bank of snow or you may just have patches. But as you continue to climb, um, at higher altitudes, the snow will be deeper. At higher altitudes, it'll, it could be harder and, and firmer and able to support your weight. Whereas down low, uh, it's warmer and softer and you're post-holing at first. Um, when I refer to aspects of the hill, if you haven't heard that term before, we're talking about what's, what direction the hillside faces, north, south, east, east or west. Um, in the northern hemisphere, uh, the, you know, the, the sun is to our south. So southern aspects, southern exposures are going to get more heat, more direct radiation. Snow is going to melt out faster. Uh, whereas upon, um, let's see, let's compare east and west. See, some of this stuff is all foundational. And, and people go, Ned, what are you thinking? You're out on the snow. What are you looking at? And I have to get into all of this for you guys to understand what it is that's cooking up here, what it is that's assessing. It's like you've always got a radar on. And see, girls are better at this than guys because girls can multitask better. There we go. We got a smile. And um, but guys tend to focus and we tend to go like right straight through crap that we don't know may kill us because we're focused on the other side. And it's somewhat of the dumb male kind of thing. But we're a tremendous blend of 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 talents. You get you get guys and girls together. And as long as they're talking and sharing you can begin to understand all aspects of stuff from things that are just felt and spiritual to things that are totally mental and logical. So this is true in the wilderness too. And I don't know how the hell I got onto that thread. And this is kind of the way things, <laughs> Carol's laughing. This is the way things come out. But anyway, let me take it back. Snow line, where you first encounter snow. Snow line will be higher on the south sides and lower on the north sides because the north side, there we go. The north side gets less sun. So you're entering the Sierra, say, eh, mid-May, and you're northbound out of Kennedy Meadows South, and you hit snow line mid-May, could be around 10,000 feet. So everywhere you go from 10,000 feet up, you'll be on snow. 
Now the snow will vary in depth. Um, when snow melts, it, it, it thins, it settles, it compacts. It's what we call consolidates. So it will pack into this nice brick that's great for walking on as long as it refreezes every night. So keep an eye, and this has to do with a thaw, on your thermometers at night and find out if they're still dipping below freezing. If you don't have a temperature recording thermometer, oh, what did I do with that? I might, I might have, uh, and I don't, <laughs> I already put it away. Anyway, um, get some kind of low reading thermometer. Uh, there's a, a product out there called a Kestrel. A Kestrel is a weather recording instrument, K-E-S-T-R-E-L. Uh, you don't need the fancy schmancy model, the basic will do. Uh, it has a propeller on the top so you can measure wind speeds and tell, it'll tell you everything about the weather. But it will record the temperatures overnight. So in the morning, take a look at the chart or take a look at the readings over the, overnight and find out if you're still, if the, if the temperature is still getting below 32, probably gonna be down in the 20s or teens in May. And that'll tell you that the snow is going to be refreezing and hard enough for you to walk on pretty much all day. But that's a whole nother subject. We covered that before. So lower elevations, snow line, it's thinner. As you go up higher, it'll get thicker. Um, when it's thin, you'll see the trail in places. So uh, you're walking along the trail. You say you're um, climbing up a launch peak, which is typically where um, I run into snow when I teach my, or I used to teach my classes out of Kennedy Meadows South. We'd go up and over uh, Forrester and Kearsarge and go out. It would take us nine days or something like that. Um, the reason for that is you go one mile an hour over snow. You've got to walk kind of more flat footed. I know it's a tough thing to imagine one mile an hour. Did he say that seriously? Are you kidding me? Um, I've got to do my miles. And it's like all this major panic. You've got to change your schedule. When you hit the Sierra, when you hit major creek crossings that can kill you, snow you can fall down on and slide into a tree over a cliff, into a boulder, break shit, and have to be flown out, you got to go slow. You've got to, here's that, where the rubber meets the road expression becomes your lifeline. What's happening at your feet and what's happening with your body balance is crucial. Have you ever walked across an ice arena? It's like suddenly it's like, oh shit, I got to walk with my feet a little further apart. I can't do anything quick. It's like driving on snow with your car. You don't do anything sudden. Everything's very slow and very gradual. So let those tires get a grip on whatever's there. Same thing walking on snow. You've got to plant your feet carefully and be a little more savvy on, on what your feet are doing so you don't fall down, go boom, and slide away, tumble. Oh, and also your falls are nothing graceful. Your falls are a, a train wreck. So it's what we call in ski patrol a yard sale. Shit's going to go everywhere and you're going to tumble all over the place and you're going to crash into whatever solid below you that will stop you. That's just the way it is. So prevent the fall by maintaining your balance. And once again, I know Carol's probably going, Ned, you talked about this already. Um, let's go make it back. So that's, that was another subject. Maintaining your balance, preventing falls, that sort of thing. This is about finding... Uh, the trail. You'll be able to see it here and there because down at lower elevations, the snow will be just drifted across the trail. 
you'll have periods where the snow is like only a, the patch is like a tongue that goes across the trail and it's maybe hey, a 10 feet wide to go across and it's seemingly no big deal. Remember anything that you stand on that's slippery at an angle, you can fall, tumble, hit a tree, be flown home, end of game. You do not get $200 for pass and go. So as you go uh, up in elevation, it's gonna get thicker and suddenly now it's more what we call a snow field instead of snow patch. Snow field being everything is covered in snow, but it's still thin. So if you look carefully, it's kind of like at night when you're looking up in the heavens and the stars and you want to look at one star, but for some reason, if you look straight at it, you can't see it. So you have to look away a few degrees to be able to see that star you want to look at. Same thing is true for finding your way in the snow. You, if, you, if you focus on just looking for that trail, you're going to not see it. You're going to panic and not see it. You've got to look at the entire slope. And then you've got to subtly pay attention to any dips, anything man-made. Now, I'm kind of getting into it now, but think about it. And as a trail constructor, as a wilderness ranger, I've thought about this. And there's not a hell of a lot that's perfectly straight in the wild. Interestingly enough, man likes to build stuff straight. Houses, roads. If we can, we make them straight. I've always wondered why towns were gridded off, you know, streets 90 degrees to each other. But when it comes to trails, the natural trail would follow contours and ascent, descent, flat, uh, that kind of thing. But when you get around the trail crew, they like to shoot straight lines. So if you see a dip in the snow, if you see a dip in the snow that's running straight, it's caused by only a couple of things. It could be a log that fell down and is under the snow and it's straight. Trees grow straight, but when they fall down, so then you got a straight line in the snow and you're kind of wondering, hmm, uh, but that's a hump, straight hump. But if you think about trail construction, what do the trail crews do to support a trail bed on a slope? They'll build up rocks on the underside. They'll take a tree that they dropped somewhere or found in the woods and they'll swing it around along the edge of the hillside and pile dirt on the uphill edge of it. So therefore, if you see a straight line in the snow, it could be the edge of the trail. Then you're looking for other signs. So as the snowpack gets thicker, you're going to lose track of where that ditch in the snow was. Snow will fill the trail, whether it's on the flat or if it's on the slope. And um, I may talk about this in some of the videos. I'm going to show you some YouTube videos. Mountain Education is a wilderness school I started in 1982. And we didn't really have video cameras that were worth a damn until about 2010. And we were sponsored by um, a camera company out of Hollywood. And they gave us some gear. And we had a whole lot of fun for two and a half months between Kennedy Meadows South and Muir Trail Ranch, documenting everything we could think of. How do you go up each pass? How do you go down each pass? How do you cross each creek? How do you identify dangers in the snow? All that stuff. And in 10 years, I've managed to <laughs> lose most of it, except for that which I put on YouTube. So we're gonna access YouTube and show some stuff today. Um, 
as the snow gets thicker, you're also going to lose any trail signs you had. Um, I'm not talking about the gross ones like the ditch in the ground now. I'm talking about um, cut branches, cut logs, signs. Um, uh, what are some other good ones? Because those are the main ones you're looking for. When, it, when the trail is covered and everything isn't plain, you don't have a ditch in the ground. Like I said, the snow, because of wind, will fill the ditch and it's all flat. And the snow up on the hillside will fill, fill the traversing flat track across the hillside to where the snow now is at an angle across the trail bed which is scary as snot because if you're up on Forrester and it just happens to be your first pass, which is sad because it's, it, it is nasty. Um, you're looking down 800 feet from your little toe onto the lake down below. And you're going like, you know, I sure as hell hope this rock I'm standing on is frozen to the rock below it. Otherwise, if it moves, I'm gone. You know, your other choice is, is to stand on that really steep, icy snow that's covering the trail bed. And that isn't a picnic either, unless you're prepared. And that's the whole point of all of this. So Carol's still smiling, so that's what counts. Okay, uh, uh, before I get into um, trail sign, because the whole, there's a number of ways to get into overstone navigation. One is grossly. Where's the ditch in the snow? Two has to do with look for a little, uh, other signs, cut branches, cut logs, cut stumps, signs of man. You're in the wilderness. You shouldn't be any signs of man, except for where the trail is. Ha, huh? what, what a novel idea. So you're looking for stuff like that. Why would all the branches on one side of the tree be missing? Summer hikers just zipping along, music in the ears, not paying attention. Right, Carol, we were just talking about this. They're not paying attention to these sort of things. So suddenly now you can't find the trail for the life of you. What clues do you have? So before I go further into that, any questions so far? Should we do this, Carol, take breaks every once in a while? Yeah, let's do that. Um, we just have one question and it's more of a clarification. So snow line, is snow line lower on the north face or north side? Yes. Generally, okay. So. On the why? Side. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I teach principle, I teach yeah. design, I don't teach brands, I don't teach phrases yeah. occasionally. But I want to teach you why. If you understand why, you can take it with you for the rest of your life and apply it everywhere because you understand this stuff. So this is why I want to put it in your heads. The snow line will be lower on the north side because it gets less radiation. So the snow that fell during the winter will stay down there because it's not being cooked. It's really pretty simple because as the, snow as the snow warms, it melts. And where it's thinner, it'll disappear. Where it's thicker, it'll just thin and further up the mountain. So it looks like it's receding up the mountain as it warms up. If it doesn't have as much uh, warmth, it's going to be lower. Also, we didn't talk about east-west. Which side of the mountain will have more snow, the east side or the west side in the spring? Uh, you know, I've never thought about that before. Would it be the, in the well, spring? This becomes very apparent to, for the Desert Divide folks, for the people leaving Paradise, Paradise Valley Cafe and going up to Mount San Jacinto along the ridgeline there because, yes, you're following a ridge that goes to the north, 
therefore you're, and you're climbing, so therefore you're on a southern exposure as long as you're right on the ridge, but our wonderful trail crews don't always put the trail on the ridge. So you're going to go on the west side and on, you're going to go along the east side. Now, if you're looking up from Paradise Valley and you go like, yeah, shit, there's snow up there. Uh, well, I could avoid it. Or I could try and deal with it and see if my skills can, can match it. But knowledge of where the snow will be thicker and thinner, where it will be colder and more consolidated and therefore easier to walk on. Cold doesn't necessarily mean ice. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. If you're prepared for it, even ice can be worked with as we have a bunch of manic ice climbers and waterfall climbers who dig the stuff. So don't be afraid of it, just to understand how to deal with it. Now, what time of day is the air around you, wherever you live, the warmest, morning or afternoon? Afternoon. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. So. The sun rises in the east. East. Cold start. Therefore, the eastern sides will be cooler than the western sides. Hot setting sun are warmer. So, therefore, the anytime you see a trail, what did I do with it? Uh, anytime you see a trail uh, that, that goes along around the east side of a peak, think. It's going to be colder on that side. Maybe it'll have more snow and ice. You look up from Paradise Valley and you go like, ah, there's nothing up there. Until you get up there on the east and northern aspects of the ridge and you have snow. And that's where Doug's, Doug Leher's son, Trevor, slipped, caught himself, tried to get back up, slipped again, fell and died on Apache Peak because he was on a northern or northeastern exposure where there was lots of cold air, lots of cold snow and ice with a soft pillow layer on the top that was extremely deceiving. And it's very common and normal, but you just got to understand that snow has layers in it. The soft surface, the surface will melt first, especially in the spring, but there is an ice layer underneath there somewhere. So just because you're able to get a grip because you can stomp down two inches of soft stuff, doesn't mean that the, the hardness you feel below that is ground. It's probably going to be ice. So what you do is you slip your foot back and forth and see if it's, if it's soil or if it's ice. Obviously, if it slides a lot, quit, slip, quit sliding the damn thing, get your balance. But at least you know. It's like when you're driving your car and you want to know if, you're, if it's getting to be a black ice conditions or, or if the hard packed snow you've been driving on is becoming a little bit more icy. So what do you do? You rock the steering wheel just a little and watch the nose of your car. And if the nose of the car goes side to side, you've got a grip. If it doesn't, if you can do this and the car's still tracking straight, you're in, you better slow down. That, but that's what I'm talking about. Know what's happening where the rubber meets the road. It's all about that. Okay, so now, uh, another question? <laughs> no, just keep going. Ah, shit, I thought I had a break. Okay, um, trail sign, signs of man. When you've been out on the trail for a month, whether you're, you've gone up New Mexico, Carol, or, um, yeah, or uh, you've done Southern California, 700 miles, whatever that is. 
and maybe you're in the in the head of the herd and you haven't seen many people and you kind of wish you had and you're feeling lonely times like that do happen it's funny even just the sight of something uh, another person has done will allow you to feel just a little more connected like i remember out in on colorado and i was on shit 12 18 feet of snow in the san juans so on skis in 1980 of all things and i would come upon a signpost it didn't have a sign on it, it was just a post and i would get all nostalgic because someone had actually stood there sometime in history and i could almost touch them and feel human it's just goofy shit that happens in our heads right in our emotions uh ghost towns you know, it's like, wow, look, people lived here. Wow, cool, you know, 100, 200 years ago, whatever it is. And you get these connections. So anyway, signs of man is, are what you're looking for. Sign of man out in the trail can be the ditch itself. It can be a line of rocks. Remember, there aren't too many lines in, in the wilderness. Yeah, maybe you could connect the dots from tree to tree to tree and make a straight line, but it's not necessarily natural. Um, so you're looking for straight lines whether it's rocks, it's logs, it's anything that man can have pushed around to create it. Uh, you're looking for missing branches on trees. You're looking for whether they were cut or broken or snapped. Um, you're looking for uh, blazes in trees, painted or cut in. Right, Carol? I'm picking on Carol just because yes. we talk a lot. Yes, however, in the Sierra, um, there were hardly any blazes that we saw. That's right. Yeah. But, but, see, I was a ranger back in 77, in the late 70s. It was still back in the pre-eco whatever movement uh, when we were still allowing and utilizing the Boy Scouts to create blazes carved into trees. Now, are you guys scratching your head on what that is? I need to hear from you. What is a blaze in the Sierra? What does it look like? In the Sierra particularly, because I, I didn't see many, um, like actual blazes on the trees is what I usually would look for on the PCT. It's a lowercase letter I. The fuzzy is the side of the tree. The lowercase letter I will be carved into the tree. That's what you're looking for if you're on an old trail. Those suckers are growing in and they're disappearing, but you'll even see if they're completely grown in, you'll see the new flesh that doesn't have bark on it, typically. There are even some old, really old historic carvings in the Sierra that date back to the, um, the Basque sheep herders and some of the early, um, uh, um, um, trappers of the Sierra who did things on trees that are still around and can be seen. And if you're a history buff and you think that's really cool, let me ask you this question. I know we're transgressing. If you're looking for history in a tree dating back 150 years, 250 years ago, where do you look? Dee, 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 dee. Play Jeopardy here for a minute. The, the early folks who were in the Sierra did shit at eye level just like we do. So the Basque sheep herders had nothing else going on. So they picked on the, 
they picked on the aspens and the thin skin trees and they would draw with their knives. <laughs> I see somebody connecting. They would draw women's figures on trees and they date and do all kinds of stuff. Well, where is that now, 200 years later? Yeah, you go. Okay, so when you're, when you're hoofing it cross country because you have no trail, when you're bound for the pass, you can see the pass, you know the trail goes through the pass, you can go anywhere to get there. Now, this is my one of my big points, so pay attention. Class, um, I know the pass is going, is there. I can see the pass, and, and I know that between me and the pass are creeks, and the creeks are going to come across my line of vision to the pass. So therefore, the trail is going to go down into the creek, cross the creek, come back up the other side, and do this repeatedly like over a, a washboard on my way to get to Forester Pass, for example. The summer trail, uh, I don't have a good example, I do. Well, hmm. You're probably not going to be able to, I'll just describe it first. And if you guys don't get it, I'll show you a map. The summer trail, what does it do on a steep slope? It's going to switch back, right? The, the summer trail is designed for people to be able to walk on uh, to where it's not so steep and stock animals can also travel it. So it's limited to a certain pitch, not like the Appalachian Trail. The PCT is graded. That's a good thing, except for the switchbacks so forever. So... <laughs> If you guys see me looking down, it's because I'm looking at all of your faces. Okay, so when it's covered in snow, that's the last freaking place you want to be is on some steep hillside, horsing around, going back and forth where every step is risking your life. Get the hell away from there. So where do you go? Look at your map. Well, yeah, kind of go up, gain the ridge. Very good. I should ask your name, but I don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, yeah. The safest places on snow, the safest route to take is either in the valley, away from the avalanches, or up on the ridge. Both are pizzas, right? So you got your, your in, in skiing, skiing terms, you do your, your pizzas and your french fries. French fries are when your skis are parallel. So be on the ridge top. For example, you come up from Paradise Valley Cafe. You swing around Apache. God, where is that? I've got a map. No, that's not it. Um, you, see, you come up to Apache Peak, and you see that the trail is going to go around the east and north side of it. And you think, oh, crap, you know, it's going to be like all ice over there. And you go up onto the ridge and you're looking around on the north and eastern sides. And you go, yep, for sure. Looks all white to me. Do I like being there? No. Where else can I go? I'm on a ridge. Hello. Right before you get to Apache Peak, on Apache Peak, on the southern aspect of the hillside, is a little creek you know, little, little teeny trickly thing, but you'll see it as a little ditch in the overall topography of a bowl that you're gonna walk across. It's gonna be dry the time you're there. And so you have just passed that. Now you're on the ridge at about two o'clock to the peak and you're going, okay, I don't like going forward. I'm not prepared for this. So what do you do? You go back to the easiest route up to the top. 
which is following the creek. You could follow the ridge where you're at if it, if it works for you. Just take the ridge up, you know, from the, it's about three o'clock position on up to the top, or you can backtrack 100 yards to this little creaky thing and go straight up from the six o'clock position to the top. Once you're on the ridge, what kind of things can stop you up there uh, or be a danger to you up there? If there are major boulders and you're horsing around trying to do like class whatever climbing to get along this ridge, forget it, that's a pain in the ass. But the terrain there is such that you have smaller rocks and you have some bushes like like um, 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 that gray stuff, um, sage, so sagey, high desert. So can I walk up there? Yeah, just walk around between the bushes, be aware of your balance on the rocks, make sure the rocks aren't moving, moving rocks aren't good for your health and, um, and follow the ridge, go right up and over. It's the safest way to go. Stay on the ridge as long as you see ice below you. Stay on the south side of the ridge if you really want dry ground. So utilize the knowledge of where the ground is going to be the warmest, therefore less snow, and pick your own course as long as you can do it. All right, now back to what we just talked about was what I call micro-navigation. Micro-navigation has to do with navigating over things that are within stone's throw from you. Uh, you're going to have on snow, you're going to have stuff like tree wells, wind wells, pillows, uh, chicken heads. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a whole lot of different snow terms. Uh, well, I shouldn't say the technical snow terms, but eh, somewhat more. But anyway, there are dangers like buried trees and junk like that that you don't want to have anything to do with because it's an ice, not ice, it's a big air, air pillow underneath. Step anywhere near it and you could be down at the bottom of the tree, eight feet down with nothing but eight feet of snow. Thereafter, piling up on top of you, blocking your airways and you die. I say that stuff because I was a ski patroller for five years and all we did was pull people out of those things, try CPR and if it worked, great. If it didn't, all right, that was your time. So this stuff happens. Uh, identifying the risk is what it's all about. So in the micro side, in the stone's throw distance, you're looking for the, to, to plot a course because you're not following a trail, you know where the trail is and you have deemed that to follow the trail precisely is risky. It's a lot safer to follow the creek, for example. Aren't that many waterfalls in the Sierra and where there are, it's usually down lower because the volume of the water had to be that much greater to create that kind of a erosion issue to cause the waterfall or it's a hanging glacier issue and that's a whole nother deal. You probably won't be in situations like that. Uh, unless you're really going cross country and then it's just fun anyway. Um, so you're looking for signs of man when you can't see the physical trail. Signs of man have to do with cut branches, cut logs, cut stumps, literally signs. You'll get really good analyzing lodgepole pine branches because largely that's what's up there above 10,000 feet, 9,000 feet, you get into the lodgepole zone away from the Jeffrey pine and, and uh, ponderosa pine, uh, which are the really tall guys. Do you guys know the difference between one and the other? I know we're digressing, but one is friendly and one isn't. Can we talk yeah. about that? Huh? Can we talk about that? Yeah. Come on, Carol, you know. Do yeah, you and then we do have one more question about the, maybe just really quickly before that. What does the I stand for in the blazes you were talking about that were kind of cut into the tree? Does it stand for anything? 
I don't believe so. It was a chosen, it was a chosen shape that was unnatural because you've got lots of animals that will chew on bark and they want to get down to the cambrium layer so that that is nutritious for them and they chew on that. Beavers, um, uh, uh, raccoons, I mean, other, other animals chew on bark. Uh, deer uh, rub their antlers on bark and, and can disturb the, the, the bark too, causing something that looks like a, 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 um, a blaze. But what, what creates both a square dot and a, and a shaft right below it with bark in between? That's kind of odd. So therefore, they chose that, I think, for that reason, something to stand out. Here's another really big clue when it comes to blazes. And it was intended this way. In forest, over snow navigation in forest is a b-itch. Um, because you neither see the trough of the trail, you know you have so much snow that you can't see signs of man. But should you, down in the snow, and it's usually because like the trailblazes were cut head height, maybe, maybe average, maybe chest height. So what's that? That's like five feet up, four feet up, something like that. A lot of times in the spring, you've only got about four feet of snow. So you're looking for signs of man at the snow level. So you're working your way through the trees. You see a blaze. You freaking lose it because you're so happy you saw the sign of man. Here's the trick. Where does the trail go from the tree? The tree is about to tell you if you look for it. The blaze points in the direction the trail goes from the tree. So when you approach that tree, if the blaze was, if the blaze was facing you, then it was a straight line between you to the tree. The blaze faced the trail. Walk around the tree and look for the blaze on the other side. If the trail takes a 90 degree turn right there at that tree, the blaze on the other side won't be 180 degrees away from it. It won't be on the complete opposite side of the blaze you saw. It will now be 90 degrees to the right or the left. So as you walk around every tree that you see a blaze on, look for the next blaze on that tree. If sometimes, yeah, thumbs up. Sometimes trail blazers didn't do that. They got overzealous and they simply, okay, we marked this one, let's mark the next one. So stand with your back to the tree because you don't know where the trail's going and do a 360 sweep, probably more like a 180 or 250 or whatever the hell it'd be. Do a visual sweep of all the trees in front of you wouldn't be on the closest one. It'd be a further one out, say, say 50 to 100 feet out. Look for blazes out there. There probably will be one. Now, here's another sign of man. So that's one, the obvious old trailblaze. Um, I'm, I'm not really talking about the wooden signs. That's obvious. So we're not going to cover that one. Cut branches are a really big deal. Um, but you've got to figure out whether, like with the lodgepole pines, and we touched on this a minute ago, the lodgepole pines, when they break of old age, et cetera, they break almost straight. So you're kind of screwed. You think, man, those are all saw cuts. 
No, not on the lodge pole. So you really have to look and see how many are broken that way, uh, which way they're facing. If you've run into a tree that has no branches up to about 12 feet, six, 10 feet. I can't remember what the criterion was for, for, for trails, trail construction. But anyway, think of this. Horses travel the trail. Rider sits on the horse. Head gets hit with branch, no good. So we cut all the branches off up to the height of the rider's head. So if you see that on a tree, no branches on one side up to a certain height, you're standing on the trail and don't know it. Look for the same sort of thing on a tree in front of you. Look for a blaze, look for cut branches. Look for cut logs. Trail, a tree falls across the trail in the summer or the winter. Trail crew comes along in the spring, takes a section of that log that covers the, the, covers the, the trail and cuts it off and pushes it away. As the trail, as the snow melts on the trail, it will melt fastest on things that conduct heat. Therefore, rocks, trees, bushes, uh, solid things that collect radiation. Solar radiation travels through the snow. Ah, didn't know that. You can have a, a boulder sitting under the snow. See, I love seeing smiles, that's great. You can have a boulder sitting on the snow, and I've got a great picture of this, that will have six, eight inch air gap all the way around it. It's completely covered with snow, but the snow does not touch uh, the rock. Why? Anybody? Doesn't it get hot around the rock? Why? Um, is the snow not as thick around something? <laughs> True, but you can have a small, thin ice layer completely covering it. So what is causing that snow to recede from the rock or log? Turn your microphone on. You can't just be mouthing in front of the camera. Well, I did tell everybody to stay on mute, but I guess we can we can unmute if we want to. Okay. I'll open it up. Anyone? Fuller refraction? Refraction. Or reflection, whichever one. How about radiation? Okay. okay. So you've got your you got your solar rays, you got your rays of light carrying infrared, right? Heating the rock just like a well, not a microwave, but you know, heating the rock anyway. And or maybe it is. Uh the rock gets hot, the snow touching the rock melts. As the rock continues to get hotter and hotter over the course of days or as spring comes in or the thaw starts, more and more radiation comes off the rock or log and that gap, that air gap between the rock and log becomes greater. So ding, ding, you got it. This is a big danger. Why? It's not supportive to your weight if you step near something like that and you'll fall in. Everybody agree? Can you see that? Okay, now here's the big problem. How do I do this? Um, you've got, I'm just gonna draw it out and I, uh, I'll draw it out and you guys can, can figure it out. All right, so you got a thing and then you got a hump and then you got it goes up. 
Very crude, folks. I can't do this shit if I tried. You have a snow field and a rock peeking out. Okay. Can you hold it up a little bit more, Ned? I will. Okay. I will. This rock does a trip like this. That better? So the rock is buried by snow, but a part of it is sticking out. What do you know? Do I, do I think, okay, here we go, here we go. Let's do it like this. Now here you got your, your air gap. So the air gap is the solid line. If I put my weight here or here, a or B, where do you want to be? Do you want to be on A or B? A, so you I see a hand up. Okay, Kimberly. I think I, I heard A, I saw the mouth move and it said A. If you step on B, what's gonna happen? Gonna fall in. Hello? Very good. I see you guys. It's like post-holing, except worse because that air gap, that air gap at A, at B, there, is going to cause your foot to hit the rock and slide down the rock. I'm not built like Iron Man. If my skin hits the rock, I'm going to lose my skin. It's going to lose. Uh, I'm also going to gain speed, and probably the only thing that's going to stop me from getting hitting the ground would be the fact that I have two legs and they come together at some point. So when you know that something is in front of you, like the top of a tree, you may see this cute little freaking thing, and it looks like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, right? <laughs> this, is, this is what you're going to see, so we might as well get into it, and it's... It's cute. I'm not an artist, forgive me, but it's the principle, right, that counts. So you have snow level and tree. All you see is the top few branches. But what's underneath? Danger, danger, Will Robinson. You once again do not want to stand near those branches because it's an air pocket under there. When I was a patroller, the snowboarders were notorious for wanting to ski in the, in the trees. Tree skiing is it. The problem is they didn't have a whole lot of, I don't mean to insult the snowboarders in the audience, but uh, too many brain cells working and they would love to get as close to the trees as they could as they did their thing. Now come Easter, uh, you know, springtime, Lower elevations, most ski areas around eight, 10,000 feet, maybe six. So a lot more warm air there. Uh, these air pockets in these tree wells uh, will be bigger. So the snowboarders fall in. So we get the call to go uh, see if there's been a, uh, a tree strike, is what we call it, um, at a certain place on the hill. We get out there and, and you're looking for somebody that's like T-boned into a tree, right? No, no, no. You got to look, you got to follow their tracks. And you see, it's like, it's like the cartoons. It's really bad. You see the tracks coming up to 
tree, you know, and, and it goes right in, you know, that you can see where the guy's trying to avoid the tree. He's starting to initiate a turn, but he did it too late. And now it's like, I see tracks going in, but not coming out. So what do you, you look down? Now it's usually powder snow because they like to leave tracks and they can look back and they go, see what I just did? And so the snow, the loose snow will cover the snowboard and you can't see it. So you have to go to the end of the train track, which was their trail, and you have to brush away the snow and see if there's a snowboard sitting there upside down. Because the, the skier, the snowboarder, did a head, head plant into the tree. So he's hanging there from his snowboard that's stuck up on the surface. So we just pull the snowboard out and that drags him out and then we do our thing. But tree wells are really dangerous. Boulders are really dangerous. Any hump on the snow has the potential to be, depending upon how deep the snow is, and you'll know how deep the snow is because periodically you're going to see uh, pockets of dry ground. Some places you have warmer currents in the soil, especially if you're in a volcanic area. There's fumaroles and there's vents on volcanoes that are still active. This is a problem with Mammoth Mountain if you've ever skied there. We've lost numerous ski patrollers there due to the, the, the lack of oxygen at the bottom of these snow pits. They're fumaroles. There's just gas. It's just, it's not oxygen. You go down in there, you die. You can't breathe. So uh, you'll have hot springs also. You'll see open ground. I had my partner step off of four feet of snow onto what he thought was grass. This was in the Sierra, right after Cottonwood Pass in a place called Siberian Outpost, huge meadow. We were sick of walking on snow for four days. <laughs> Little did we know we'd have it for four months. Um, so he said, ha, I'm gonna get off the snow and I'm gonna have solid ground to walk on. It didn't even occur to us. I was 17, I didn't know why the, we'd have beautiful green grass surrounded by four feet of snow everywhere. Why? Ask yourself that stuff when you get out there. This is all part of navigation because it may show up on the map as a spring. Then you know where you are. <laughs> he stepped out on the grass and sank up to his chest in water. He couldn't get out. So I pull him out. If this was a true emergency and it became it, what are you going to do? You're going to strip the guy and you're going to put warm clothes on him and you get him in a sleeping bag and you get him out of the cold air and you're going to get warm fluids and food in him and hopefully save him from hypothermia because he's going there like a freight train. Well, we weren't thinking that either because the air was warm. Sun was out. We were okay for the moment. It dawned on me that there was a ranger station building in about a mile. In the distance it took us to walk a mile, and it was probably more like a half a mile, somewhere right in there, because I go there every year multiple times, um, and the ranger station is no longer there. Um, his clothes froze, and he could not move. Right when we were starting to use our little Swiss Army knives back in 1974 to break into the ranger station, uh, and I know I am saying this on a recording, but it's that it, it saved our lives. <laughs> Because he was going into serious hypothermia and we needed to get him out of the environment and get him warmed up. You can warm up a person from the inside 
with hot food and, and fluids, and from the outside by trapping air next to his skin and warming it up. If he doesn't have the ability to create the heat to warm up that air, somebody else has to. So therefore you pile people into down sleeping bags and stuff like that. So that's what clothes does. That's why clothes work. That's why the thicker the clothing, the warmer you are. Down jacket, the thicker it is, the warmer you're gonna be. Puffies are cool, but they're gonna have a lot of cold spots where the stitching goes through. That's a whole nother story. So let's get back to the trail and, and, and throw it open for questions right at the moment. So we don't have any other, oh wait, somebody says thermal blanket with a question mark. We used to call them um, space blankets. They're, they're kind of like um, <laughs> the nodding of the heads. Um, they were basically these foil fabric laminations uh, and sometimes just foil and, and there'd be um, emergency space blanket um, I think it was called and it was like half the size of a pack of cigarettes or something along that order and it was all about reflecting body heat that the idea of that is to uh, reflect your body heat but don't thinking I'm not thinking about you're not thinking right if your body is so shutting down that you don't have a furnace running on the inside you're screwed you can put all the foil around you you want, and all you're doing is blocking the wind. Yes, important, but you've got to create heat. So when we have through hikers who are um, saying, I'm going to go stoveless, I freaking panic in me in my head. You know, five years search and rescue. It's like, you idiot. If people can suffer from hypothermia in 60 degrees, you know, you can have two people standing side by side. One is perfectly warm and the other's freezing their ass off. And it's the same temperature. So don't go without an external source of heat in a cold environment. It's a cold, hostile environment. It sounds great. You have the lightest pack. But unless you can protect yourself, it may be the last time you ever have that lightest pack. You got to have the wherewithal. Space blankets a good idea, and um, your 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 smoke jumpers and your 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 um, firefighters have something like that also to protect themselves from from the uh, uh, fire blowing over them. Uh, I'm, I only taught firefighters. I didn't um, I did I didn't do that sort of thing. But I, uh, the principle applies: reflective heat, and that's great. But if you really want to stay warm, you've got to trap heat. You got to trap air next to your body. How does that happen? Air molecules stick to the fibers. The more microfibers, the more air particles you can retain and, and, and not lose heat with your body and, and stay warm. That's why you have really thick Icelandic wools and stuff like that. And they work great until the wind blows. Fleece jacket, yeah, great until the wind blows. So then you put a shell on the outside block the wind, create dead air space that you can heat with your body. But you've got to be powering this furnace with food. So we could go back, Carol, to the last conversation, bring lots of food. Now, where were we? Uh, science of air? I don't know, Ned, if you want to get into the video somewhat soon. Um, yeah, but at 1.30, we were going to switch over to kind of the interactive Q&A. So just however you want to time it. OK, let me get through. I'm going to get through the signs and then of, of micro, because the videos you're going to see, if maybe we'll just show one. And they're just a few minutes long. Um, and they're taken from the PCT. 
uh, at some of the locations that you are going to walk across where you're going to want to go, where am I going next? And if you stop and you get out the map, as I may do in, in some of these, um, you, you can get it into your head where you're going because your navigation is done by sight. You don't have signs to go from A to B to C to D through the woods. Now you're above timberline. Where, which pass? Every mountain peak has a saddle. You have a peak and you have a peak and you have a saddle in between. They all are different looking, but they can be very confusing. From a distance, you're gonna go like, well, which saddle does the trail go through? And you can get, you can pick the wrong one. And I've run into PCT through hikers coming out of nowhere. And I'm, I'm going like, well, why are you guys coming from way over there? I can see your trail going way up toward the mountain. And they said that, well, they got lost. They picked the wrong pass. That kind of stuff happens. So that's macro navigation and the videos are all about that. Let's finish the micro. If you can see the trail, great. Snow covers the trail. You're looking for the depression of snow. It's linear depression in the snow, probably the trail. Question comes up, do I have to be on the trail? Ah, let's deal with this one. Akin to what we were talking about with the switchbacks. North facing switchbacks are probably gonna be compacted, icy, nasty. You don't wanna be there. You see switchbacks on your map on a north side drop, northern aspect drop into Rock Creek, be the first one, then Wallace, then uh, Wright Creek. Then you go over Bighorn Plateau into Tyndall. Uh, that doesn't have an issue, uh, but it's, it's, it's Rock, Wallace, and Wright. They're all west-facing, west-descending creeks that will have a northern aspect that you're gonna drop down into that's switchbacked. They're nasty. Do you have to? No. Just because you're following a trail and for the last 800 miles, you have been following a trail doesn't mean that you are not following the trail if you're not on it. Period, exclamation point, underline, bold, italicized. It's just like the point we made last weekend. You do not have to cross the creek where the summer trail does. Bold, italicized, underlined, etc. You cross and you do things based on your skill level and what's safe. Back to the hazardous environment again. It may not be safe for you to cross the creek right there. It may not be safe for you to descend the hillside where the summer trail does. So you look for less steep slopes to go down. Could be along the creek. It could be, it could be on some exposed ridge that's just a piece of cake, a sidewalk. Just go down that way. Does it go to the same destination? Where are you going? You're going down to the creek. Who the hell cares where you hit the creek? Just get down to it. Once you're there, establish where you are in line with the creek. Do you need to go up or down to get to the trail? Ding, ding, ding. Do I need to get to the trail? <laughs> so if the trail leaves, if the summer trail will cross the creek somewhere. And then it is going to probably go either up a ridge or a valley to go somewhere. If you decided, hey, I'm going to descend this nasty face. I'm going to descend down to the creek to a little bit to the west, say, for example. So now I'm down at the creek a little bit to the west of the summer trail. Well, look at the map. Guess what the map does at Rock Creek? 
It follows the creek to the west and then crosses. I don't even need to go back to the east to get to the trail if I, it's coming my way. So you can't see the trail anyway, so it doesn't make any difference. Where does the trail leave the creek? Is that at a place that you, your skill level will let you follow? In this case, Rock Creek goes up a, um, a drainage, therefore sort of a bowl, but it does so by a couple of switchbacks. So it's a convex bowl. How should I do this? Like that. You're going across a convex ridge side and you're switchbacking across this thing to get up into an upper bowl. Um, look at the map and you'll notice that the, the less steep slopes are marked by contour lines further apart. Contour lines, the brown lines that are closer together means it's steeper. So you're standing there at the top, and this is all about, um, this is a little bit of macro. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit a couple of details and then we'll go to video. You're standing at the, the top of the drop. You've walked along this bowl and you're gonna drop down to Rock Creek. You're standing at my, well, I was gonna say at my nose. Um, you're able to see down into the creek you're able to see up out of the creek and you're able to see all the way into the bowl that the trail follows after the creek. Now you've put it in your head where to go once you're down in the creek because you're in trees. You can't see out of the creek. You don't know where to go. Ah, but you memorized when you were up top, when you were up here, you memorized the trail goes down the creek, goes to the west a little bit and climbs up into an upper bowl at the base of a big peak. What's the name of the big peak? I've forgotten it. Shit, I thought I had it a minute ago. Find it on the map. Get it in your head how to leave the creek because you're going to be in trees. You're not going to know one lump from another down there, except that you know that you have to get up into that upper bowl. So what I'm talking about here is gross navigation. It's navigation by sight. You're not going from point A to B because you can't see A or B. You're now going by what, what valley is that? Um, what peak is that? Where does the trail go? I don't, it doesn't matter if you're 100 yards to either side of the trail. Are you going in the same direction as the trail? Yes. Are you going up the same drainage or ridge as the trail? Yes. Are, therefore, are you going to reach the same destination as the trail? Yes. And you're picking a safer route because you're walking not on trail, you're walking on snow. So its steepness is where the rubber meets the road. So th that is that, let's finish a couple of details and go to video. So what I wanna say is cut branches, cut logs. Uh, we digressed with talking about rocks and air gaps because what happens with those cut logs, the trail will go right to the middle. The, the summer trail crew cut the log last year, for example. But those log faces are warm like the tree, like the side of the tree, and those log faces face the trail. So when you see one, look for the other, and the trail's in the middle. So anytime you see anything cut with a chainsaw, saw, whatever, carved, that's a sign of man. Usually the trail is nearby. Look for another sign. Cut branches, branches cut to 10 feet on one side. Ah, there's a problem there. If you're in a forest, yeah. Branches missing on one side of the tree, 10 feet up, probably because of an equestrian right of way 
That was the rule for trail construction. But if you're traversing down Palisade Creek after leaving um, Palisade Lake and you're dropping down to Deer Meadow and you're heading toward the Con Canyon and Muir Pass, you just left Mather. Look on the side walls of the canyon. You're about tree line. So the trees are far apart. You can see a long ways. If you see trees on the side walls of the canyon that are gone, and then there's trees, and then there's no trees, you know, all signs of tracks running down the hillside, well, there's no trees, or there's just baby trees. That's an avalanche zone. What is that snow going to do to a tree? If it doesn't snap it off, it's going to snap off all the branches on the uphill side. So I am looking at a tree that's missing all of its branches on the uphill side to a certain height because the avalanche is only so high. Does that mean an equestrian trail or an avalanche came by here sometime in the past? Look around. Are all the other trees broken, snapped off, damaged? You're in an avalanche path. You know, so you can throw that out as meaning a sign of man. Uh, so cut logs, uh, lines of rocks, stacks of rocks. Uh, those are all unnatural. That's the stuff you're looking for. Um, a couple other details in the macro or micro. You don't want, you want to avoid the trees, the little Charlie Brown tree sticking out, go give it a wide berth. Little bits of rocks sticking out, give it a wide berth. You don't know what kind of air pockets under there. Um, creeks, depending upon if you're in there during early May, you've got, uh, uh, creeks are barely moving during the spring. They move very slow. They may have just inches of water in them. But there are places in the creek that, uh, um, will have holes. We'll have access, you'll have access into the creek so you can get water. They can be big holes, they can be oblong, but whatever. They're going to be open to the air. The air comes in and it flows under the snow above the water, eroding the snow, hollowing it out, creating a snow bridge across the creek. The warmer that air gets above the water, the thinner the, the snow bridge. Now it's getting heat from underneath as well as solar from the top. So it'll get thinner and thinner as the month of June approaches. Remember, your overnight temperatures are warming up. Maybe you get used to, as long as it's still freezing at night, you're golden. But there will be about a 10-day, a week-long period before the actual thaw starts, which is when, and marked by, the hallmark, it's no longer freezing at night. And, and it happens there from then on. That's the thaw. Once the thaw starts, the creeks rise, the snow gets soup, and you start post-holing and cursing and getting frustrated and fl flustered and all that. You want to utilize the cold snow before the thaw starts to get anywhere. It's like walking on a sidewalk. But anyway, so micro is going to involve looking for straight lines in the snow, looking for cut branches, cut logs, signs of man, blazes. You now know how to follow blazes to go from one to another. Put your back to the trees, scan the horizon, look for another blaze. They're going to be old because we don't do this anymore since the 70s, but they're still there. Um, you're mainly navigating by sight. Yes, there are clues up close, micro but you're gonna be navigating macro. You're gonna be looking at your map over dinner for the next day, and you're gonna be trying to memorize the canyons and the ridges you're gonna travel. You want to know landmarks. 
you're going from one landmark, not trail sign, you're going from one landmark to another, whether it's a, a lake, a meadow, something of dis discernible and identifiable shape and location. It's not natural to have a perfectly round lake, but if you find one and it's where you're going, like the PCT goes by Gilbert Lake up in Desolation Wilderness on the south west side of Lake Tahoe, perfectly round lake. You think, what the hell was this? A, a, a volcanic explosion at one time? How did this happen? But once you see it in the snow, you know where you are. A meadow that has a dog leg in it. You come upon, you come out of the trees and you're in a meadow and you're looking at the shape of the meadow, then find that shape on your map. This is kind of goofy. Up on Mount San Jacinto. Now you gotta tell me if you guys can see this. See the meadow, the meadow is white. Trees are green. Mm, yeah, we can see it. All right, there's a shape to the meadow. When you come out onto a meadow, identify its shape and find it. There you go, bring out your maps and study the snot out of them because it's gonna save your life. Okay, uh, let me get set up here. Any questions? We'll go to video. We don't have questions at the moment. Where the hell am I? Oh, <laughs> uh, I got to figure out how to get to share screen. Mm, yeah. Because it's no longer there. Oh, let me just check and make sure. What? Yep, you're able to share. But I can't see the button. Sorry, guys, we're getting technical on you. Yeah. Think of, some, think of some questions, will you? Otherwise, I just sound off and you probably get tired <laughs> of listening to this. We can edit this for the podcast and YouTube too, but does anybody in the meantime have any questions? You can unmute yourself at this point. It looks like maybe Kimberly. Sure. Do you have any tips for post-holing? Don't. <laughs> Don't um, post-hole. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't fair, I know. Um, yes. If you find yourself in the Sierra during conditions that allow you to post-hole, uh, if it's a local, if it's a local condition, in other words, you just sort of fell into a soft pillow, obviously, you know, extract yourself as best you can and go around it. Um, if, if footsteps all around you are post-holing, you know, like the people the day before, yeah, you're basically screwed. So the solution is not to be out there in those conditions. What are those conditions when the air temperature gets so warm and the direct radiation gets so intense that the snow doesn't stand a chance and it turns into mashed potatoes. So you have to utilize the, uh, the ability to walk on the snow when it is cold enough to support your weight. When's that really early in the morning? It may not be freezing overnight, but it's getting close. So therefore some of the snow is firming up from the melt or the thaw period of time of the day before. So snow goes through a freeze thaw cycle every day thaws during the day, refreezes at night, or gets close to it. So your solution is to walk uh, in the twilight hours at sunrise. Uh, don't walk in the dark. Don't walk um, uh, when you can't see the things you could trip over, slip on, when you can't see far enough that you don't know where you're going. You can't navigate to the pass, to the peak, to the right valley. You, you don't want to be walking at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. unless there's a full moon and you can see and you're above timberline. If you're down in the trees, it's all shadow. 
you're screwed and your little headlamp doesn't shoot far enough for you to be able to see the next blaze or, or identify the next creek drainage to go up or avoid. So you wanna wait till the sky starts turning light blue. There are fewer stars out. That's when you finally take off. And that's when the snow is gonna be the coldest and the safest for, for avoiding post-holing. And just go as long as you can until you start post-holing and then call it a day. That's as far as you're gonna get that day. The trick is to get up and over the pass and onto dry ground again before you start post-holing. And then you can make miles all the way down and then back up the next drainage to where you hit soft snow and say, forget it, it's 2, it's 2 p.m. I'm gonna take the rest of the day off because I'm just gonna swim in this crap and I don't want to get frustrated and pull a knee or pull a, a hip joint or something because you will literally post hole up to your hip. So, and it's a frustrating thing. And the only way to get out of it is to shed your pack and roll off onto your side and a wheel around in the snow and get completely covered and wet and freeze your ass off. And it's just not all that fun. I can see your screen and um, it's the video. So if you press play, we should be good to go. If anybody can't see it, send me a message in the chat, okay? But I, I can see it and I think everybody else can. We good to go? Yes, you can press play. There it is. So that's what you want to look for if you were able to see my screen. Yeah, and I can see it. This okay, is, this the is one our I want. second real long distance navigational uh, point of view. And the last one was from Alancha Peak looking to Siberian Pass. Now this is from near Siberian Pass, the southern end of the uh, Sequoia National Park looking north toward Mount Guyo and to the, to the uh, current river drainage. What I'm going to point out to you now, since this is completely, as you see, covered in snow, your path does not need to follow the trail. The trail is going to take you over this ridge, on down to that low tree ridge right over there. And you're going to be following, going, following the trail, going through trees, picking your way from one tree to the next as you work your way down that arm, which is probably going to take you forever. Our suggestion is, is that you drop from here, go straight on down to Siberian Outpost. Catch this finger down here, follow the tree line on the, the south edge of this, this uh, tree line down here along the meadow, cut across to the next tree line along the edge of the meadow, Follow that doodle on back, and you see a white finger, a white little canyon going up to the right. Matt will show you in a minute as he zooms in. Follow that on up and drop on down back to, to Rock Creek. Once you get to Rock Creek, you want to remember this now because once you get down in that canyon, you're not going to know which way to go. When you cross Rock Creek, you got to be able to visualize Mount Guyo. Mount Guyo is that broad, white faced peak right right there the, the <laughs> black sawtooth peak in the background is on the other side of the current river that's Kawea peak and Kawea ridge you don't have anything to do with that that's much too far away so you're gonna you're gonna come out of siberian outpost you're gonna hook around this low white bump here drop down to rock rock creek and then that broad white semi-tree slope right there is mount guyo you're gonna cross in front of that down low in that canyon and you're going to go through a, a shallow pass before Guyo Park, which you can see right through there. Now, what I'll do is I'll come back to the camera and we'll walk you through it. So let's start by dropping down to the meadow right there. 
So you go on down to the meadow and you follow the tree line right where Matt's going. Then you pull, go forward, cross the, there you go, perfectly. Catch the next tree line, follow that tree line around. Then you're going to drop on down through that white notch right there. Zoom in on that. And from there, you're going to go around and down to Rock Creek. Now pull back. Go that way. Now come on in here to Guyo. There it is. Now zoom in. Now you're going to stop. What you're going to do is once you cross Rock Creek, you're going to follow this canyon up right in front of this broad white face. And right through there, so zoom in right there. Should be a saddle right there. And that's what you're going to go through and then drop into Guyo Park and proceed north of Crabtree. So that's your next, uh, the rest of the day, if this is summer, or if you're uh, watching this for uh, snow navigation, that could be the rest of your day just to get to Rock Creek as it will be ours. What do you know? I haven't seen that in forever, so that was pretty cool. Okay, are we back? We're back. Okay, let's throw it open. Okay, open questions. Let's do it. And we did have a couple in the chat. Um, let me see here. There was one about river crossings, and I know we kind of covered that in our river crossing um, session a couple weeks ago, but um, maybe you can give a little bit more info um, I'm trying to find where the question is. Let's see. When crossing a creek, is it a good idea to wait overnight to cross for the freeze? Other strategies. So, you know, we could tell people to listen to that river crossing session, but you can give a quick, you know, maybe. First, do you see me? Or do you, what do you, do you see me by chance? Yeah, the screen's back to normal now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, cool. Because I'm, I'm seeing the old <laughs> movie. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, just let's just encapsulate this. That is one trick to use. Um, basically, you want to take advantage of the cold air at night to reduce the amount of melt going on in the canyons above you, causing the water to be so deep where you are come, uh, come afternoon. So more at morning, during the morning, the flow rates will be slower and the depths will be uh, shallower making for safer crossings, but you can find shallower crossings, slower moving water during the day if you just know where to look. And it's not rocket science. Think about it. Where will a creek be the widest? Will be where it's flattest. Take a look at your meadows. Your meadows flood. So the water is way out to the sides and shallower. It's much easier to cross uh, a creek in a meadow than where the trail crosses it, because the trail's crossing it. I mean, it's called the Pacific Crest Trail. The trail's on crests and steep slopes and stuff like that. If you see something in front of you you don't like, go look for a meadow. Go look for a dry crossing, a log to cross, rocks to hop across. Uh, bushes and islands to hop across, you know, look at your map, have a bite to eat and look for that white spot on the green map. Go there and then come back to the trail. 
So you can wait or you can go explore, drop your pack, get something to eat and drink and go wander up and down the creek for half a mile or so in each direction and see if you got a dry crossing nearby. Great, those are the only other questions in the chat. So let's open up the floor if anybody wants to unmute and ask a question. <laughs> How, can they hear me? Yes. How about crampons? Uh, the difference basically between crampons and like the traditional or like just micro spikes. Because I've, I've seen different brands like micro spikes, maybe like half an inch spikes. And I've been told not to go with the, the, little, the little guys. And I'm kind of debating whether I just get crampons and go with them but I do have like ones that are maybe like decent, but I was told basically fluff of snow can get into them and then cause them to freeze and basically you're just sliding all over the place. Yeah, that, that condition can happen no matter how long the spikes are, no, you know, the teeth. So um, uh, it's really gonna depend upon whether you have a boot track to follow or not. If, if the surface of the snow is flat side to side, where you don't have that issue of, I'm going to slide sideways down the hill because somebody went ahead of you and pounded out footsteps or a track, a flat track to follow. If that's the case, then microspikes are fine. Microspikes don't work for beans on, on a steep hillside. They weren't designed for that by the manufacturer. So, I mean, I, I pretty much, if, yeah, how do I address this? Um, if you are happy and content with following in the footsteps of other people who probably don't know where the hell they're going either, unless you're way back in the herd and everybody's kind of figured out that if they, if they ignore that way and the footsteps going that way and they kind of go down the middle, they'll eventually figure out that that's where they want to be and they like it. Um, but don't just think if I follow someone's tracks, they're going in the right direction because they, they probably don't know where they're going either. Um, and it's normal. So um, bring a GPS unit with you that shows you where the trail is and where you are. And if you're an acceptable distance away and that's no big deal and you feel safe there and you didn't like it, it was fine. But back to, to, to the microspikes versus hiking crampons, do not bring climbing crampons that have foot fangs in the front because you end up just cutting across your Achilles tent. Yeah, there you go. You understand. So you don't want climbing crampons, you want hiking crampons. And if you really have this fit about uh, a few ounces more from the micro spikes to the hiking crampons, then, then go with the micro spikes, but stay on a boot track. Don't get on anything steep. I don't use micro spikes. I, 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 they failed me too many times, but there is a time and place for them. Um, so that's what I would recommend. There's got to be questions about those funny looking ski poles that you saw in the video. You can bring a pretty hood ornament, like a hood ornament on the front of your car. It looks nice. It says BMW or something. I don't know. Like an ice axe on your pack. You feel cool. Mountaineer look. Got a little antenna sticking up. It's kind of neat. You can hang shit off of it like socks. Um, <laughs> but if you don't know, what risk looks like, you're screwed. Uh, and you know, this is the expression that you always heard from your mom. You know, if little Jimmy runs over the cliff, are you going to follow him like an idiot and run over the cliff? Yeah, we all know that. But it's true. You know, if you see a bunch of people going across the steep snow face at the base of Forrester and they're doing fine without an ice axe, well, what should you do? 
it's based on your balance on your feet. It's based on the traction you have between your shoes and the, and the snow. It's based on whether you've got the right length teeth on your traction device. It's, it's based on a lot of stuff. But if you don't know what risk looks like, it will catch you off guard. So through hikers have a tendency to be very through oriented. You know, Carol's calling her thing through her. You know, there's a reason we, we think going somewhere. We're out there to go somewhere. And if we don't get there, we get bummed out. And but that's not that's not the safest thing. You've got to know wh what risk looks like and then stop. Stop is not just a word. It's an acronym. S-T-O-P. It stands for stop, think, observe, plan. You see the people in front of you and they're doing fine. You don't think there's a risk there. But for you, there could be. For them, there may not. It's like the idiots that say, I don't know what your problem is. I went through this year, as last year, and tennis shoes and, and, and shorts and, and had no problem. There's always somebody who's got a lot of talent and, and balance and self-awareness to know how to get through just about anything. Your gear does not make you safe. It just gives you a tool to make what you need to do easier. A hammer, how are you going to beat the nail with a rock? Yeah, it'll work. Hammer makes it better. So you've got to identify risk. Otherwise, you're going to be falling down the hill with the ice axe on the back of your pack. You've got to be willing to stop. You've got to slow the jets down and then think about how, what is the best way for you to get across that risky patch the safest. If you take the ice axe off your pack, that's a start, but there's a number of different, <laughs> Carol's says, yeah. Um, there's a number of different things that ice axes are a cause. You're not a climber. You're not using that ice axe overhead to go up the waterfall. You're not creating, you're not using the ice axe as an anchor in the snow to run rope through and then belay off of or repel off of or whatever. You're actually trying to walk with your ice axe. If the ice axe is itty bitty short little sucker, you're going to be bent over like old granny trying to walk down the sidewalk. It's like, where's your sense of balance? It's screwed because you're using a really short ice axe. An ice axe to do you any good on a steep pitch of snow, it has to be sunk in all the way into the ground, into the snow. Your hand is like the gorilla on the ground. Your back is bent over and you've got a monkey on it. Are you going to be balanced and comfortable and secure? Hell no. Your balance is way ahead of your feet. You want your weight on your feet. There's Teresa. Hi, Teresa. And so, <laughs> so the key, one, maintain your balance. How do you do that? With your poles. I can, I can correct for left and right slips by using my poles. I can make sure that where my head goes, my body won't follow because I can stick a pole out and catch my balance. If you've only got one pole and an ice axe and you start going head first downhill, because hello, that's where gravity sends you, and your little ice axe is just scratching the surface, it's no anchor, it's no good for anything, the next thing you're gonna do, be doing is you're gonna head plant and then you're gonna use your ice axe after you've fallen. Prevent the fall. Keep your weight on your feet, that's where the teeth are. Utilize them by keeping weight on them, by keeping your balance, keeping your poles out at 10 and 2 o'clock or whatever works for you. 
And then if you should slip, the ice act isn't on the back of your pack. Can you see it? No, you can't see it. It's on the end of your pole. You've always got an ice axe. You've always got a pick in your hand to self-rest with if it's on your pole. It's the best for a hiker. You're not a climber. Did that kill it? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Awesome, nice. thank you. Yeah, because that's the question. When do you quit the poles? When do you grab the ice axe? So you're right, it's way more comfortable. Thank you. The key is that it's always in your hand. Yeah. The question has come up. Well, what about Southern California? Should I bring my micro spikes and ice axe from the Mexican border? Good question, yeah. And everybody's going to go, ah, you idiot, you fell for the, the fear tactics, you did that. But Mount Laguna right now has snow. San Jacinto just got another foot or more. Yeah, it may melt off pretty soon. Who knows? I don't know what it's going to do. But on north-facing slopes, it's going to melt slower. It's going to consolidate. And it's going to pack down and it's going to become ice and crusty on those on those aspects on those surfaces so yeah you're in sunny southern california where it never rains right but at altitude on the mountains you're going to have snow and the temperature is going to be cold and on the northern aspects you're going to be in shade and in trees where the ground is slippery and steep as hell so you should bring a traction device of some kind, avoid the ice by going along the ridges or around down the valleys or whatever. Usually the valleys in Southern California are warm, so that's not the problem compared to the Sierra. So avoid is your first tactic. Second is have the right gear, the right tool that'll help you be safe. Bird in the hand is better than the, than the one in the bush, right? So the ice axe in the hand, the self-arrest tool in the hand is better than the one on your pack. Okay, you may be ridiculed by the stupid hiker community that doesn't know yet, but you'll be the only one that's smart enough to have a whippet in their in their hand and Mount Laguna, which is what is it, three days in, something like that, four days in, whatever, you know, San Jacinto is what a weekend. You're up to nine, ten thousand feet, sort of. Yeah, I wouldn't if I if I'm going into the Sierra. And I know that there's even going to be a patch of snow that's going to be steep that I have to walk across. I'm bringing crampons in, in a whippet. I don't care what people think. I, I've seen it. I, I know it. If there's a boot track and I know that that boot track's going to be there, then I might go with micro spikes. But I'm always going to have the whippet because you never know when you're going to slip. All it takes is a chicken. Oh, I didn't explain that. A chicken head is a screwy expression for a uh idiot maker um in the trade see every trade has their own expressions and ski patrol is no different ski industry is no different when snow falls off of a branch and a big snowball and lands on the ground it it consolidates it's hard the soft snow all around it over the course of time a few days the warm air will get into the soft snow and melt what remains is this chicken head that's standing up, which is this snowball that fell off the tree. And these can be anywhere, usually beneath trees, but not necessarily. So chicken heads are, are little um, rigid structures of frozen snow and ice that love to catch your toes. They love to peck at your feet and trip you up. 
Do you know when that's going to happen? Usually not because you're talking about hamburgers and pizza and beer in the next town. And you're thinking about the miles you got to do. And you're probably pissed off because you haven't gotten as far as you want to get by, by where you're at. So you're not paying attention to dodging chicken heads beneath your line of vision and you fall down and then you're tumbling. It's nothing graceful about it. It's a, it's a, it's a yard sale. You don't, land like the ice skater in some glorious fashion and spin out and stop and go, wasn't that fun? No, you're tumbling ass over tea kettle and you don't know up from down. So if you've, <laughs> if you've watched any of my stuff on self-arrest, it has to become automatic. No, it has to become reflexive. As soon as you hit the deck, you've got to know to go to the shoulder that has the pick. Your self God, let me get it. Then you'll know what the heck I'm talking about. All right. Here's your, here's your whippet. Right? Pick on a pole. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? You always hold it like this. Thumb under where the ads would be if it were an ice axe. Fingers straight across the top. The pick comes out the little finger side of your hand always unless you're using it as a walking stick and then you can have it any way you want if you're pushing yourself up the hill your hands on the top if you're breaking yourself on the way down the hill your hands on the top don't get locked into this all the time you don't need to be like this this i don't even use these things i keep it on the whippet because if the if the risk ahead is such that i know i need an ice axe i don't want to lose my ice axe i'm going to come up and get into this. I don't want to lose this. My other pole doesn't have a strap. So what you do when you fall is you assume this, a self-arrest position. It's a locked position. You don't throw this thing out there in the snow and hope that it won't be ripped out of your hands because it will be. That's what the pick does. It digs into whatever's there, but it has to have weight on it to work. Where's the weight? It's right here. It's your body. This has to be right here. So when you're walking along, and this is in your, for example, right hand, you keep your elbows to your ribs, you bring your right hand straight up, the pole goes across your chest, and your left hand is down around your pants pocket, hanging on to your pole. You should have a little bit of ice axe, if you had an ice axe, it should be long enough to where a little bit of it sticks out of that hand when it's down by your pocket. You don't want your ax so short that you're hanging onto it up here by your chest because it can spin. And once it spins, it's out of control. You wanna have some leverage. You wanna be hanging onto this thing, in this case, down where there's a joint in your pole. This is a um, aluminum version of the whippet. You don't want to, very good, you got your ax. So thumb under the ads, fingers straight across the top. This comes straight up to your clavicle, your shoulder bone. Comes straight up here. You don't want to palm forward. You want to rotate your wrist so that the pick is pointing forward. Hand is down there and, you're, and it should be running right across your sternum, the bone right in the middle of your chest. It does you no good for this thing to slide up above you as you're going down on your stomach. You can't put much weight on it and it might even rotate to where it's it's skittering along the surface of the snow. You lock into this position and you don't move and you put your weight on it, and you ride it out. 
and you dig your toes in and do everything else you can do to stop. But if this isn't in your hand, see ya. We had one guy die on San Jacinto because this. We had another kid die, uh, Trevor, on Apache Peak because of this. There's no foul to bring any kind of safety gear you deem necessary, even if you don't, in the end, realize you ever needed it. You had it there. Safety gear can be a tool like this. It can be a GPS unit. It can be a big enough tent that you can change your clothes in without touching the sidewalls. Because remember, you can get a dump of snow, two, three feet of snow in the Sierra into July. What will the snow do? It's gonna push down on your tent. It's gonna push in on your tent. And the walls of the tent will start having a ton of condensation. It's gonna to turn to ice, which is then gonna fall all over you and you're gonna get wet and cold. A bigger tent, you've got room to get the jacket on, take jacket off. That kind of thing. That's a safety tool because it keeps you from getting wet and cold, which will kill you. The conditions change. You saw the video and I was saying that a storm is coming in. Yeah, I dumped um, four, four to eight inches of snow that night. You heard the wind, the wind and that, you saw how exposed I was on Bighorn Plateau right before Tyndall Creek. We could see Forrester very much out in the open, very exposed. That alone can kill you. You don't stay in places like that when the temperature's 15 degrees for very long. You don't do a video out there just to prove the point. But sometimes people at home, I mean, what do we know? We don't know what it's like out there. We're here, I'm looking out at the Pacific Ocean. You know, if it wasn't for the fact I, I, I've got this stuff, how can I show you? So it can turn to nasty in a, in, in a minute. That's mountain weather. So. Safety tools are important and they may not look like a tool. It may just be a tent or a sleeping bag or a, a sleeping pad that's a good four or five inches thick full of down feathers. Sort of God, you try one of those, you're never gonna let go of it. And they don't pop and they don't make any noise. The next time you sleep next to somebody at a, at a campsite, Carol's nodding, and they're rolling around on their ultra lightweight air mattress and it's groaning and creaking and squeaking and making so much noise you just wanted to like frick it i'm going i'm going to get up and go start hiking i don't know how anybody can sleep on those things you might make me a convert ned <laughs> i still have an ultra light one but i'm thinking about switching over um it looks like kimberly has a question so at what point should you consider bringing baskets for trekking poles yeah or like I'll probably be starting later in the season, but at what point? Yeah, those. What point should I definitely be uh, packing them in case I need them? Like, what sort of conditions? Yeah. What does a snow basket do? No, so. Once again, I'm going to take you back. Besides, I could simply tell you yes or no. I want you to think. I want you to be armed with the knowledge. What does a snow basket do? Black snow, as far as I know. <laughs> like it sounds. <laughs> okay, my arm, my arm is the level of the surface of the snow. If the basket were not there, if this basket was not there, the pole would go all the way down. So the basket is like a snowshoe. It is a flotation device, like a snowshoe. It makes the tip that much effectively bigger. So when you push on this, when you lose your balance and you suddenly push on this, 
it has something to to gather together all that snow, pack it down to where it's hard enough to be able to push against, and you can save your balance. So the answer is in a post hole. Then this will post hole too if the snow is soft enough. But the answer to your question is. As soon as the snow gets deep enough and soft enough to where you need a basket to float on the surface, then you need the basket to float on the surface. So I would, I mean, are, are you going to be in deep enough snow in, at Mount Laguna? Yeah, right now. It's going to melt off probably by the time you get there. Will you have deep enough snow on San Jacinto? Probably not because it's going to be consolidated. Consolidated is hard pack unless it's soup. Now here's their problem. The little baskets that, that summer hikers are using, and you'll see all I'm doing is unscrewing this thing. And it, it unscrews and it's very easy. See, I've already removed it from its hub. Gotta get this where you can see it. You can see the basket is moved up and it's not a big deal to carry this and stick it on whenever the conditions weren't it. But once you're on snow, the conditions weren't it all the time, even if it's ice. You never know when you're going to hit a soft spot in the ice with this and go all the way down. And if you're catching your balance at the time, you're head planting because this is going to do you no good. So just leave your snow baskets on when you go into snow country. This is not rocket science. It's, it, it becomes common sense. And if you haven't through hiked or haven't done a lot of snow stuff, I mean, God, I've been in the snow since I was five. So 60 years or, well, I'm 60, whatever am I, 64. Um, you know, that's a long time to, 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 and I'm not talking about just visiting because when you visit snow and you go downhill skiing, you know to be prepared. But if you're living in it every day and you're dealing with the different conditions as they warm and get cold and then wind and no wind and, and running and dripping and all, the conditions change. So uh, you learn what to be prepared for and that there's merit to erring on the prepared side, even if you don't need it in the end. What is your, uh, your thought on uh, traditional boots compared to the new hiking running shoes? With waterproof socks? With, yeah. where it was waterproof, um, with waterproof uh, socks. Okay. Um, this is a back to where the rubber meets the road. If the tire is wrong, say you've got racing slicks on your car and you hit a puddle. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to hydroplane. Wrong material. Um, soft rubber is designed to mold around things like climbing shoes, soft, sticky rubber, so that you can, you can get a bite on on, on almost anything, it'll grip. So the, the, the type of rubber on your shoe, it's pattern, the depth of the lugs, it's firmness and it's shape can kill you in the wrong conditions. I say it that strongly because for 82, I started the school in 82, it wasn't until 2010, wow, what is that? Whatever that math is, I started requiring when hikers started thinking, uh, what is the thing? A pound on my back is five pounds on my feet. No, a pound on my feet is five pounds on my back. 
that old army study is fallacious. It, it doesn't hold water. I wear the heaviest boots probably imaginable because I beat the snot out of them and they have to perform and I get used to them. If you think your feet are, your feet are at the end of a long shaft, right? Your legs, it's like a pendulum. If I want it to swing, if I want the pendulum to swing easier, I put a little weight on it, put a little weight out there and it swings great, especially on the downhills. Anyway, Weight on your feet is not a bad thing. Now, some people, they travel really light, and that's great. They should do that till the cows come home, and, and that's fine. But those folks, if you start asking them, and I know I've deviated a little bit, and Carol's kind of like going, um, <laughs> picking on you. Um, those folks, if you ask them, well, how was your hike? Was it, was it, how were your feet the whole time? Oh no, I had blisters and the shoes fell apart every 400 miles and my toes stuck out and I was jamming my toenails into the end of my shoes because the shoes didn't fit and I kept getting bigger and bigger shoes and my feet kept spreading and getting felt whiter and whiter. And, and now I, I've been home for two years and my feet haven't recovered and I'm, I, I'm limping around all the time. It's like, hello folks, you're just not getting it. <sighs> So back in about 2000 and something or other, I required whenever all my students started going to these trail runners and these soft soled tennis shoes that are below the ankle. So if you got weak ankles, you're shot already. You have no support. Okay, maybe you know where I'm going to because I'm telling you, I'm not telling you yes or no. I'm pointing out that a taller shoe will protect your ankles. And it's not so much protect your ankles, it will hold them from going ink or ink. Right. All it takes is to step on a little a little rock and it doesn't take much and your ankles go. Right. We've all had that happen. If there's no firmness on the lateral side of your ankle, your ankle's going to go laterally. And then what happens? You sprain or strain your ankle and you take some zeros and you take some aspirin and you pray that everything gets better. And sometimes it does. And most of the time you're going to limp your ass off the trail and go home or something. So Ned, you don't believe that your tendons will adjust? Like, you know, like walking barefoot is the best because you adjust all the time. You don't think oh, the shoes will get used to them and will get used to the terrain? It will, but what, what happens, see, when you talk to them, they'll say, I got a lot of blisters and the shoes fell apart and all that crap, and they're usually referring to early on. If you talk to the hikers once they're up in Oregon and Washington, they're flying. They've got their body dialed. The tendons and ligaments are dialed. They're strong. They're balanced. They've got their act together. But most of this crap is happening before they get to the Sierra. Okay. It's those first, it's really the first five or six days where your body goes, hell no. And you have to nurse it. And then after the fifth day, you begin to start feeling a little bit of, huh, I feel a little stronger this morning, you know, and then by the evening, you know, you're hurting again and then after so after the first five days you've got a, a landmark and then you've got another one in about two weeks where you suddenly realize and carol correct me if i'm wrong you suddenly realize damn i think i'm getting this rhythm i think i'm gonna make it so your body does adjust but it takes time one thing that the hikers don't seem to think about is time you have time just have more of it by starting a little earlier and go a little slower at first but to answer your question, when people started going with soft-soled shoes, and I have them behind me in my, in my group on the snow, as soon as we hit anything steep, 
their souls, their souls didn't have edges. And one of the good things about a whippet is it works great to grab crap. I just reached over with my whippet and caught a fish. Here you go. Traditional hiking leather boot, right? Whether it's your thing or not, but this is a tool on snow. The reason why it's a tool is one, this part of the shoe can be laced tight so the foot cannot slide toward the toes on the downhill. When the hikers bitch about having toenails and are losing their toenails and are going black, it's because the toes are banging into the front, right? Prevent that by having an upper. Yeah, there we go. I saw that. So that helps. So that's a tall shoe. Laterally, you, 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 um, what's the word? It's like, it's like a, a, a tape wrap. You know, you hold your ankle together by having something firm here, both sides. Next on snow, and I'm going to see if I can get this, I'll use my face. You want to have a 90 degree angle right here. That 90 degree angle cannot be flattened. When you stand on edge, for example, find a place in your town where there's a a sloping sidewalk, a sloping hard pan hill in a park, a ramp anywhere. Oh, handicap ramps were great. Get out on the handicap ramp. <laughs> I'll use a back scratcher. Handicap ramp, stand sideways on this thing and put your weight on the edge of your boot and have somebody look at it or look at yourself and see, is that soft sole changing that angle? Or does it retain its edge? That edge is gonna be the first line of defense. So your, your crampons, your, especially your micro spikes, nice having it. Oh, poles, what is a pole? See, I'll go like this all day. My teaching style is called spew. Your pole is an extension of your arm. That's all it is. You use it to catch your balance. You use it to push yourself up the hill. You use it for braking on the downhill. You use it in the middle of the creek for balance. You extend the snot out of them. You shorten them up on the, on the uphill side. You shorten that pole on a traverse. On the downhill side, you lengthen that pole. They're extensions of your arms. So you can use them to grab crap. You can use them to pick up things. Your pole falls over, use your other pole, pick it up. But anyway, what I'm getting at your micro spikes, if you look at them, and I don't know where we're at in the, on the time frame, Carol, so you're going to have to, but the- You have 30 minutes still, so we're good. Okay, sweet. I would put this in a shoe and show you, but I'm, I'm, I'm winging it. The teeth, the edge of the shoe is here. The teeth are inset down the middle. Now, what the hell good is that going to do you when your shoe is on the edge of a hill? Edge of hill, shoe. Actually, because your foot's going to be flat on the bottom. So the contact saving your life is the edge of your shoe. So what would happen with my students is we'd get out to that first descent down into Rock Creek and their shoes would turn into skis and their ass over tea kettle and they're going like, what do I do? Because that happens. That, that 90 degree angle that looks so pretty in the store 
when you put weight on it, it curves and it smushes out and it turns into a ski and you go sideways. You have no edge. You need, your, you need an edge because these little teeth are running down the middle of your shoe. So what do you do? You get a shoe that's got an edge. So if you're gonna be in snow, get a boot, get something that's got an edge, unless, unless you can guarantee that you're gonna be in a boot track all the way. If you're in a boot track, which is that flat little trail, I don't care what you wear as long as you've got strong ankles. But remember that that boot track was formed by people making steps. And one step is a little lower than the other. So you're gonna have humps and bumps and potholes and stuff. And in the morning, what is that? It's been thawed during the day and it's gonna freeze at night or get close to it. So that's gonna be a slippery, snotty slope during the morning. So you're gonna be out there in the boot track wearing your micro spikes because it's the only way you're gonna have traction. But you're walking flat. You're walking on a surface that's flat side to side. You don't have the risk of sliding sideways. So take whatever shoe you want. If you've got great ankles, then it doesn't have to be a tall shoe. But if your toes are banging into the front of the shoe, you need some laces up the front. Did I, did I say too much? No, 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 that's great. So yeah, meaning we could do the trail shoes at the start and then stop doing the Sierras in the snow and then go back to them. She's wondering about like the traditional leather boots. Do they really freeze? Like the we were wondering about freezing. I didn't we didn't seem to have an issue so far. So okay. any anything that comes in contact with the snow may absorb some moisture. That moisture is gonna freeze at night. So the trick with the trick with your shoes when they're wet and you take them off, is you better open them up as far as they'll go at night because that's the position they're going to be in and frozen in the morning so that you can try and get your foot inside. Now, the another trick on that subject is to not be such a, uh, is to first of all, go early. But if you're going to go early in the season, utilize the frozen snow to walk on, which is smooth. No chicken heads, no, no wind ridges, none of that shit to, to, to trip you up. Um, you can sleep in. Hello? What do you know? You've changed your schedule to where now you're planning on doing 8 to 14 miles a day on snow. Yeah, you got a lot of snow, but it's wonderful snow to walk on. You got your safety devices. You know how to stay balanced. And um, you don't have issues with your boots getting wet. Why? I thought if boots came in contact with the snow, they're going to get wet and therefore then freeze at night. These things, and you may see that there's a shine on them. They have a seal. The seal is like an oil or a wax. You you'd normally traditionally treat leather boots this way and the, the, the seal will wear off. So you're gonna carry a little bit of it with you. It doesn't need to be a lot, but that's what keeps your, the leather from getting wet. So most snow is probably ankle deep until, until your post toe. So yeah, the surface of the snow, even during the secret season in May, surface of the snow will get soft so that by the afternoon, you might have a couple inches of powder you're kicking into. That's great, but there's ice and, and hard pack underneath that. So as long as your shoes are, are waterproof or waterproofable, your feet don't get wet, shoes don't get wet, the insides don't get wet, 
And there's no issue of struggling with fricking frozen concrete shoes in the morning. But if you do put them out in the sunshine, broadside to the sun, have your extra cup of coffee or whatever in the morning, let them warm up. And by the time you get out of your down booties from running around inside your tent and outside of your tent and horsing around, come eight o'clock, which is, which is major sleeping in for most through hikers, these suckers are nice and soft and warm and cozy. And you get out of your down booties and you slide into these and you have a wonderful day. It's not rocket science. I think I could maybe weigh on this a little bit too. So um, I hiked in 2019 and Ned knows the story already, but um, very snowy year. And I entered right during the thaw because I didn't have these resources <laughs> before I went. So I didn't know anyway. So I um, talked to Yogi and she told me same thing as what Ned is saying, go with a boot for the Sierra. So I went with um, some Merrill Moabs. They're actually men's, um, but they fit my feet well. And I was really glad I did that um, because I could kind of cut into the snow with them so much easier than my other friends who were wearing trail runners through. So I'm glad I did that. And then I switched back over to trail runners after the snowy sections for the rest of the trail. So um, that's what I did. I don't know if that helps, but <laughs> you can switch it up. Here's a rule of thumb. Whoa. Here's a rule of thumb. If you can take your boot and twist it, it's a ski. Don't, don't go in the snow with something that you can twist. You can't edge, even if it looks like, okay, yeah, Ned, there's a, there's a nice 90 degree angle there. Hello, it should be fine, but it's really soft. I don't know if you can see it. I can barely see it, but I can squish it. If I can squish it, so will the ice. So this is, isn't this a design similar to the, the Moab? Um, so my Moabs were lower profile. It didn't go all the way up the ankle, but um, it looks somewhat, the sole does, but my sole wasn't that soft. I think my sole was more hard than that. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. Mm -hmm. Any other questions, you guys? We have 15-ish mm, minutes. I'm trying to think of something. I'm sure there's more you can say, Ned, <laughs> on all of this. Yeah, there's always more. Um, I just want to make sure that I've made made that the, the main uh, points. Micro navigation is learning how to navigate around the, the hazards and the dangers in front of you. Macro is is going for the next pass, going knowing what creek you're going to go down into, knowing what ridge you're going to follow from a distance. So those videos were very macro navigation, looking at the big picture. Um, there are hazards out there that are buried in the snow. And we talked about some of those. Uh, avoid them. Wind, there's a thing called wind wells and the wind will, will swing around a tree. So if this is your tree, the wind will hit the, the tree and split. And when the wind splits on the tree, it'll spin around the tree. And it'll take away the snow that's around the tree and create this hole, this, this well. And you don't want to get too close to them either because you fall into them. And it can be a drop of four feet, three, four feet, something like that. Um, and yeah, it would probably be embarrassing more than injurious, but um, give those sort of things a wide berth also. Uh, so wind wells, tree wells, rocks, logs, signs of man, micro, macro. Um, uh, you're very much 
following your topo map. You guys really need to learn how to read uh, contour lines and know what they mean. But if you, if you know enough that when the contour interval, when the brown lines, where the hell am I? When the, when the little brown lines are close together, it means steep, as opposed to when they're far apart, like out here. That'll tell you where you want to be and where you don't want to be on snow. Hey, Bob made it. Good to see Bob. So your safety begins the night before. Your safety began in planning when you decided, I'm not going to try and do <laughs> my 20s on snow. Are you freaking kidding me? You're down to a mile an hour on snow, but there is a way to do it. You've really got to be aware of where snow line is and how many miles of snow you have to, to cover to get up to the pass by 10 o'clock. Remember the magical post-holing time, about 10 in the morning. So you want to get up there and glissade on your butt down the backside to dry trail before post-holing hour. So when you, in planning, if you have this in mind, a pass a day, a major creek a day, because don't forget, there's also a million little fricking creeks that are gonna drive you absolutely nuts to the point where you're gonna to wanna to say, I'm not taking my shoes off another time. I'm gonna leave them on and I'm just gonna rip through this creek because my feet are already wet. Ah, what did we learn from World War I? Anybody know where I'm going? Trench foot? Trench foot. When your feet are wet all the time, you get a, uh, a condition that happens with your skin that will debilitate you. You know, you're inviting infection, uh, among other things. So it's very crucial that you realize how to manage your feet so that they're dry as, as much as you can. Problem comes in when you're crossing creeks and there's snow right at the edge of both sides of the creek. You really don't have any dry trail to walk, to heat up the shoe, to dry it out, or to dry your socks. Have multiple pairs of socks so you can rotate them through your shoe, hanging them wet on the back of your pack to dry out, uh, so that you can minimize the amount of time that your feet are wet. But once they get wet and cold, and if they're that way chronically, because you've given up on all the stupid tributaries, you're really getting in trouble and you don't know it yet. So you've got to be able to keep those feet dry. And I do it just by having, you know, you put, you take a shoe like this and you put a tall gaiter on it and the gaiter needs to wrap around the shoe relatively tight, but it doesn't have to be exact. I can walk through creeks with water up to the middle of my shin and water does not get in my boot. People go like, oh, my God, that's mind boggling. But it isn't. I got videos of it. I, I don't know if I've got it on YouTube. I unfortunately lost a lot of videos. But with the right system, with the right planning, this all begins way back when. You can have a ball in the Sierra. Go slow. Enjoy the hell out of it. And make your miles when you have dry trail. Because you will. You will come out of the snow by, by Donner Summit. Drop into Northern California where it's off and on again snow. The problem up there, in case you ever entertain the idea of flipping, which I guess is not legal or something now, but there's a lot of trees in Northern California. 
Where does the snow hang out? The north side of things and in the trees. So you're going to be thinking, I'm going to avoid the Sierra where I'm above the trees and it's easy to navigate. I'm going to go up to Donner and I'm going to go north and this is the month of June and I'm going to avoid all those nasty creeks. And that's all fine. I'm glad you avoided the nasty creeks. That was smart because they'll kill you too. But you're going to run into navigating on snow and trees and that's a beach, right? So you're really not helping yourself. So um, I can go all over the place. I can talk forever. I do this all day long on, on my trips when I'm out there with the kids. So uh, we actually do have a couple more questions. Bob, I don't know if you wanted to say this in your own words. Yeah. Your question. Can you hear me now? I just unmuted myself. Yes. Hey, guys. Uh, very helpful. Thank you. I'm, I am a, a unicorn here. I um, had a permit to do a SOBO starting June 21st. And, uh, but, you know, monitoring the Hearts Pass snow tail looked like it would be uh, perilous indeed. I've experienced hiker, I've through hiked the AT and I, I hike in the White Mountains a couple of times a week in New Hampshire. But uh, so uh, with help from the PCTA, I uh, legally changed my permit. So now I'm starting in Trekkie, heading north on June 13th. And I presume there'll be some snow. I think you just alluded to it, Ned, <laughs> around Donner Pass. And maybe I'll find some of those uh, um, tree hazards that you just described. But, you know, I, I'm from the East Coast. I started the PCT last year, but then got off with the infamous, you will, you know, be an evil person if you keep hiking. So I, I got off trail and came home. But uh, so this year, I'm going to do the flip-flop. So love your perspective on on any insights you have for the snow that I'll face and uh, what preparation I should take. You're, you've got a real wise way of looking at that, Bob, in, in excellent planning. Um, typically, you know, I lived in Lake Tahoe, South Lake Tahoe and worked as a ski patrolman for five years. I was in South Lake Tahoe, but no Donner very well. Um, after a normal winter, uh, you will have snow. You may have uh, three feet of snow, echo to Donner, um, in June, um, from Donner North, it does drop in elevation. You will have stretches of snow. You're not going to have the fields of snow like in the High Sierra, but you'll have lots of uh, more than patches. And it just really depends. Right now, I think the uh, that region of the Sierra is sitting at about 60 something percent. Um, they just got some more snow. I don't know what it's sitting at, at the moment, but um, you pretty much plan on snow in the trees. Uh, you may uh, end up walking snowy roads uh, just because you can't find the trail and there's no harm or foul in that. I, you know, you're still following the trail. You're just off to the side, down lower on a dry road. Mm. You know, there's, there's a lot of them. So don't feel bad. Like you have to follow the trail through the snow, getting lost, going slow, getting wet and cold. Screw it. Drop down to some dirt road that's probably paralleling the trail just down lower. And, and I was thinking um, just bringing a whip it. Um, even though I, you know, part of me thought, well, maybe I, I don't need any, anything, but I thought maybe a whip it, but perhaps, you know, obviously decide when to get closer, but a whip it and maybe not micro spikes, unless I learn, you know, about the snow hazards. What's your perspective on that? Do you know when you're going to fall? Uh, 
I'm going to follow a lot uh, if, if past history repeats itself. <laughs> so if you don't know when you're going to fall, you don't yes. know the conditions are going to be pristine and fantastic. And I'm thinking of the girl from the movie Brave. Uh, uh, forget the redheaded cartoon character. Anyway, she was always, I'm going to ride through the forest and everything's going to be perfect. And I'm going to shoot my arrows and all that kind of crap. I don't know if you guys saw the movie. It was a great movie. Anyway, you're going to have conditions where the, the slopes are <laughs> where the slopes are going to be steepish yes have a self-arrest device in your hand to keep mm -hmm. you from hitting the tree that's waiting for you below you case in point was when i taught a class out of out of hearts pass uh mid-june 2014 or something we everybody thought yeah that's the time to go mid-june man get out there knock out the miles whatever that was my thoughts well you know that does that doesn't work yeah, but it depends upon the winter. If you have a light winter, yeah. If you have a normal to heavy winter, forget it. That's in a subject that we, we covered before. Um, God, where was I going? Oh, yeah. So you don't know when you're going to fall. You need a self-arrest device in your hand for those times you do. May it be a whippet. It's not a climbing tool. You're not a climber. Who the hell cares? Will it work? Will it do its job? I got videos showing they're, they're perfectly fine. The, the other objection is it's long. How the hell am I going to do a self-arrest with something that's two or three times the length of my ice axe? Well, look, this is your self-arrest position, right? Which way do you go? You go to the shoulder that has the pick. So you roll toward the pick. You roll to the pick. So how long it is sticking out of that side of my body doesn't make any difference. Take it. Got it. Good. Good feedback. Thank you. Yeah. Any other Nate? questions? We have probably room for one more. Kimberly, I know you asked maybe about um, some good glissading pants. So I put something in the chat for you, but Ned, I don't know if you have any thoughts. I know you're not into brands and all that stuff, but as far as like easy glissade, um, yeah, if you're going to be glissading down on your butt, it's any materials I should be focusing on so I'm not just getting ripped up pants or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, most of the hiking pants, most of the things my students bring with me um, because they're, bring, they're, you know, they're anticipating cold. So they've got long underwear, they've got a, a, an insulating layer, and then they've got a pants shell for when conditions are bad, like in the video. Uh, you need to have that, those kind of layerings going on for your legs. Um, the shell for me, because I need a fully, a full zippered, uh, pant that I can pull it off or I can open up the zippers when I start getting hot. Um, I can take it off easily without having to take my boots off because you're in snow sitting on whatever. Um, it's gotta be an easy on easy off thing, but those things are expensive. You know, a decent set of, uh, uh, full Gore-Tex, uh, a durable, pants are not only going to be expensive, but they're also going to be bulky and heavy. I don't care. I'm, I'm safety minded. I'll take what works for me. If you don't know, what do you do? So you ask around. So I'm glad you asked. What seems to be probably the easiest outside of that? Because most materials used by the, the, the hikers these days are, are not durable. You want like a Cordura nylon. You want like a taffeta nylon that is durable on the outside but it's bulky and heavier than most people can accept in their theory. 
once you fall ass over a tea kettle and you find out what works and doesn't work, you don't mind carrying the weight because it's going to save you from freezing your butt off. But what does work on the lightweight side is to go to the hardware store and get a, a section of blue tarp, you know, blue woven construction tarp. And you cut a square big enough that you can tie it like a diaper around your butt. It works. I've watched my students do it. Now, what happens is, yeah, there's going to be abrasion because remember, you're sliding on frozen ice crystals. Hello. So, the, yeah, the surface at 10 o'clock when you're glissading, you've gone over the past. Now you want to have this tremendously fun and exhilarating and scream your head off all the way down the hill roller coaster ride of a glissade. And that's what you'll have. And you'll have as many as five of them going down Forrester if you know where to go. But most hikers stick to the trail and they only have one. It's such a bummer. You really, you gotta, you gotta get the hell off the trail and look for the slides. It's like going into the public park as a little kid and you want the swings and you want the slide because they're fun. Well, now you're gonna be walking on slides all day long. Boot skiing and boot skating. You'll learn how to do that. But anyway, I don't wanna lose the train of thought. Um, uh, the, the, the diaper thing works great because you can spread your leg. When you spread your legs, you allow all the soft snow in and that's your break. That keeps you from going too fast. You can step out of it. You can take one leg and swing it over the, the pile of snow that'll build up. You can swing it over to get going faster. Um, so the, the diaper, however you make it at home and then bring it, but you want to make sure that, um, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't allow snow up, up, the, up your groin and up the middle and it doesn't come apart. It can be knotted. And yeah, what I was saying is you they will have some abrasion. You're on ice crystals. There's an ice layer underneath the soft surface snow. That's what you're sliding on. You don't want to be sliding on soup. I've gotten up to the top of Forrester, wanted to glissade down the other side, sat down and my ass goes so deep into the soft snow, my feet are up in the air. It's like, you're not going anywhere. It's a tremendously huge sit smart. And it's just like, you know, anyway, so you got to get there at the right time of day and you, you will have uh, ha had enough time on snow to get to your first steep descents that you'll know when the right time of day is. It's not too hard. It's not too soft, but there will be an ice layer and it will abraze the bottom of your tarp. So just check it out after every glissade, see if you caught a rock, see if you caught a branch, see if you went ripping over an ice or a pine cone you didn't know was there, because that happens. A branch that's sitting buried in the snowpack from some previous storm and you just ripped across it. So I would bring something like that, if not, you know, something better. I mean, I go with something better because when it's storming and you're not yet at camp, and the wind's blowing like hell, and that's your only shell, hello, you're going to freeze your legs off. So you need something like rain pants or, or but see, rain pants are only designed for, for rain. They're not even good when the branches and the bushes are rubbing along the sides and Carol's nodding, because you're going to have that problem up in Oregon and Washington. You may not have, uh, uh, well, it will, it'll pour rain like mad, but the water gets on the bushes and the water, the bushes are up to hip height or whatever. And you turn into this wet, freezing cold, and then the fog comes in and then you can't see for squat. And, you know, anyway, the stories go on and on, but, um, that'll durable nylon or, or something you can create at home. Great. Yeah. 
just you saying about going through all of that higher brush in Oregon and Washington, I called that the car wash. Like we were going through the car wash because it was just hiking and everything was wet. So I had to put my rain pants on. And so I did put the link to the rain pants I used in the chat. If anybody wants to check those out, they were great for glissading and there were also rain, but um, they probably weren't as durable as what you're talking about, Ned. So that's something you guys have to decide for yourself on um, what works for you. But unfortunately we're out of time guys. Thank you so much for coming And Ned. Any last words before we sign off? No, I give you guys a, a, an earful you know, um, digest it as best you can, uh, listen to it again. Uh, there's just a ton of good information I just laid out, spewed out, and um, uh, apply it, test it. Just because you heard me say it doesn't mean it's God's truth. What works for me may not work for you. So you've got to find out for yourself, but it gives you a leg up on the problem. Uh, if it worked for him, maybe it might work for me. So, um, and the other thing is that I've dealt with a lot of other hikers trying to do it their way and seen it fail. And you don't want to be in their shoes. It's scary as hell. So, um, and literally it was the shoes that was the problem where the rubber meets the road is the big deal. And navigation isn't that tough. If you look at your maps and you go from landmark to landmark and you use something identifiable signs of man up close, but the long run is in the Sierra. It's really easy because you're above Timberline. You can navigate, you can see three days in front of you, four days, right, Carol? You can see from the top of one pass over the next four. Right, mm-hmm, yeah. You don't know it yet, you know, because you don't know what those passes look like. But when you get to them and you look back, wow, is that Pincho down there? Is that Mather down there? You know, it's, where's Muir? Turn around, go see if you can figure out where it is. And you go that way. Yeah, exactly. it's, not, it's not rough, but it's, you know what, I hope this may, gives you a little confidence um, because your confidence, you got to guard what goes on up here. You start worrying and get fearful, uh, it'll screw with you. So um, try and remember some of these little tricks. Great. I've been out there every year. You're an expert. I'm not, I'm never going to not say that, Ned. <laughs> know you don't believe it but thank you so much ned for um just spending some time if you guys want to donate to mountain education um i put the link in the chat just to thank ned for his time i'll send you guys an email after this with all the info again this is going to become a youtube um little episode on our youtube channel and then i'll also be making this into a podcast so you can go back and refer to it later so with that thank you guys for coming so good to see everybody and um have fun and stay safe out there Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Well, that's a wrap for this session. I know when I was a new hiker, I would have gotten so much value out of this. And if you feel the same way, consider thanking Ned for his time by donating to Mountain Education. The link is in the show notes for that. And like I was saying at the beginning of this episode, we will be uploading the video via YouTube. Um, and we have our own YouTube channel. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. So in about a week, that will be up. But make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you get the latest on all of our uploads. And if you would like to get involved with our community at Thruer, the website is www.thruer.com. That's www.thru-r.com. And on there, we have links to our social media. We have helpful resources on there, um, registration for our meetups, and more. 
And once again, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, happy hiking.